You're listening to Marist Connections, a podcast produced by the Marist Alumni Office, which highlights members of the Marist family, including our alumni, students, faculty, staff, coaches, and many more. Hello, everyone. I'm Amy Woods, Executive Director of Alumni Relations at Marist and a graduate from the class of 1997. For the fourth season of Marist Connections, we're bringing you stories of alumni and faculty authors and their experiences with writing and getting published. Today's guest is Jim DeFelice. Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you? Thank you, how are you doing? Can't complain. <laughs> Jim graduated from Marist in 1977 with a degree in English and from SUNY Albany in 1982 with a master's in English. He worked for several newspapers, rising to executive editor and general manager at Taconic Newspapers before leaving in 1987 to try his hand at writing novels. Jim has now authored and co-authored over 50 books, including multiple New York Times bestsellers, such as American Sniper, Omar Bradley, General at War, Westlake Lightning, American Wife, and codename Johnny Walker. He's also the founder of Redacted Studios, develops scripts for video games, and serves as a consulting producer. Today, Jim joins us to talk about whatever it took an American paratrooper's extraordinary memoir of escape, survival, and heroism in the last days of World War II. The book, which he co-authored with Henry Langrahir, is a first-person account from Henry, who survived D-Day and World War II. Now 97, Henry remembers parachuting into France, surviving heavy anti-aircraft fire, being captured by Nazis, living in a death camp for two weeks before rescue and returning home. Jim helps Henry put his story on paper. A Tale of Heroism, Hope and Survival, whatever it took is a timely reminder of the human cost of freedom and a tribute to unbreakable human courage and spirit in the darkest of times. Thank you for joining us again, Jim. That's my pleasure. So before we jump into the book, we have been asking all of our uh, guests with the pan with the podcast, how have you and your family been coping with the past year in the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, well, it's been, you know, it's been an interesting year for us and I'm sure for everyone. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, a lot of members of our family had contract had contacted, uh, contracted, had gotten COVID. See if I can get my uh, words out properly here. You know, talking to a talking to a college college alumni audience, you know, you gotta you, know, you get a little nervous, I guess. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a lot easier to do TV or anything else, but now you know you're talking to people who, you know, knew you or went to you know went to the school you went. So the stakes mm -hmm. are just so much higher. So <laughs> I'll try to be on my best behavior. We've persevered and. Um, you know, it's funny, writers, you know, everybody's talking about working from home and, you know, the adaptations they have to make with their offices and, and uh, you know, turning their houses into offices. Well, you know, writers pretty much work from home. And uh, so in that small respect, I guess we're kind of lucky. Yeah. So there are 19 million veterans living in the United States today, many of whom have amazing stories of perseverance and survival. How did you choose to highlight Henry? Well, Henry, it was interesting. I was um, invited by the First Army to um, 
to talk about uh, D-Day and to a, a celebration that they were having. And um, pretty much, not quite when I got off the plane, but shortly thereafter, they uh, started telling me about uh, Henry and uh, saying that I, I really had to write a book about him. And um, I was lucky enough to meet, to meet him uh, the next day. And, you know, we started getting, we kind of got along. Uh, he's, he's a delightful fellow. Uh, if you can, if you're allowed to say that about a paratrooper, I mean, paratroopers tend to be, uh, you know, rough and tough guys, uh, or at least they have that reputation. And, and certainly uh, he proved that, uh, and as did other uh, members of the Airborne Services during the war. But he um, is very, uh, very pleasant fellow who, of course, didn't want to do the book as pretty much every World War II veteran I've ever spoken to uh, said, uh, you know, they, they, to a man, they will say they're not, they were not heroes. They were just doing the job that they were sent to do. Um, and then uh, with basically with the help of people from First Army who felt that his story should be shared, uh, you know, Henry kind of came around. Uh, there are aspects of the, the story, it starts out, I think, is kind of a, you know, almost a gung-ho story, and there's lots of stuff about, you know, the battles, and then it, you know, it takes a much darker turn. Uh, to me, it was kind of a, it's kind of a, a, the flip side of the war from a book that I had done a year before with, um, with an army medic named Ray Lambert. That book is Every Man a Hero, and, um, Ray, uh, who unfortunately passed away uh, very recently at, at 100 years old, uh, he, was, um, he was a medic and served in basically from Africa to Italy to, to France. So his, his whole story kind of covers, covers the entire war in Europe, or most of the war in Europe. And uh, he also has a, had a very unique story in that mostly when we talk about we talk about soldiers and people who served in the military and served during the war. We're mostly talking about people whose job it was to kill people. I mean, that's unfortunately, that's the reality of what war is. Uh, but uh, Ray's story was, Ray's job was to save people. And, um, and he did that. He, uh, in the course of his career, he won uh, two silver stars, uh, rescued at least two guys out of minefields and uh, on D-Day spent uh, quite a lot of time uh, rescuing drowning people or drowning men, uh, soldiers and others who had been wounded. Um, Henry's story uh, takes place inland or most of his battle was, was inland. Uh, they had landed, they landed uh, the night before the, uh, the ships came in and they had to, their job was to secure uh, some of the passageways that the Germans would use to reinforce the bridgehead or to, to attack the, the troops that were landing. And uh, there's the usual confusion and things. Henry was a very, very young man at, at the time and um, was just kind of thrown in as a, as a uh, combat engineer with another group. And um, so a lot of what his experience in the war was really learning how to fight. And, um, and that's what he did. So without giving too much away, you just gave us a little bit of uh, Henry's experience. Is there more you can tell us about um, his job as a paratrooper? 
Well, his job was to, uh, you know, as um, as other engineers, which is basically to, I guess, uh, basically is supposed to blow stuff up. I mean, that was really uh, what what they were supposed to do. He actually ends up um, because of the confusion of that day. He, uh, while still qualified to blow things up, uh, he loses his explosives. And he ends up with uh, with uh, a unit of regular uh, paratroopers, and so he ends up uh, fighting with them for a day or two, and then deciding um, to to stay with them. Um, and then you know, then kind of goes through the war for the next month in the hedgerows. One of the one of the things that we tried to do, and I tried to do, and whatever it took, is talk not not just about what you know Henry's experience in the war was. But to also talk about uh, what the experience of you know the home front was, Henry's sweetheart at the time, uh, Arlene, who had um, you know, who was back in Clinton, Iowa, uh, waiting for him. Uh, she uh, is also still with us, and she was very generous in recalling some of her uh, experiences, uh, you know, just different things and what life was what life was like back in the, you know, in the 1940s, and these people had come through the depression. Uh, they were now dealing with, uh, you know, with shortages of all sorts of, all sorts of things, uh, using ration, using ration cards for, you know, things like gasoline, trading them. Uh, in their case, they avoided using the black market, uh, but, but a lot of people uh, resorted to that just to, just to get things. Uh, you know, during COVID, we, we, a lot of us complained about the shortage of toilet paper. And uh, mm -hmm. that's the, that is a crucial shortage, obviously, if you don't have it and you're used to using it. But their shortages were, you know, were much more dire. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the things I think for me, having heard their stories, I think, that uh, you know, going through going through COVID, uh, even at the worst of it, I could could always tell myself, well, this may be bad, but it's not nearly as bad as the people in World War II had it. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular moment or account that stuck out to you after hearing Henry's story? Um, hmm. You know, there's so many, and I don't want to give too much of the book away. I, he uh, the 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 point at which he gets captured is uh, for me kind of sticks, stands out because he, they're in the hedgerow and they're attacking and the hedgerows were uh, for people who aren't familiar with that part of France. You can think of them when we hear hedges, you know, we think of these nice little shrubs that line the driveway or the walkway, the hedgerows there were, you know, from six to eight feet high. They were basically like cement walls, even though they were made out of earth and uh, vegetation. And they had come through and the Germans would, uh, you know, would guard them and would use them for protection. Then they would retreat across a farm field to another hedgerow. And the Americans had different tactics depending on, you know, basically what day it was during the war on what they did. And uh, Henry, at one point, they're going through uh, one of these hedgerows and they're suddenly making a lot of progress. And Henry is thinking, wow, this is great. We're doing really, really good. And then the next thing he knows, there's this uh, very large gun pointed in his way. And he thinks, 
oh, that's going to shoot at me and I'm going to die. But he doesn't actually die. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's kind of where the book takes off. Yeah. So you are listed as a co-author for whatever it took. What is it like to co-write a novel? Um, the, I've written um, a, a number of memoirs now, and the, I mean, my idea is to basically use the tools that, that I have uh, and give them to, you know, whether it's uh, Henry, somebody from World War II, Henry or Ray or Chris, Chris Kyle, uh, or uh, Johnny Walker uh, from the Iraq War. And uh, how exactly would they tell their story if they, you know, if they could, could write it? So in order to get their story, we spend, you know, we spend a lot of time together. Um, in, in American Sniper, I stayed with uh, Chris and his wife, Taya, and they stayed with us uh, over a number of um, months. And, you know, basically, they just talk and they just tell me what they remember. There's also a lot of research that obviously that goes into it uh, to, to, you know, whether it's background information uh, about the war, uh, talk to, you know, talk to other people who were there, uh, their commanders, their fellow, uh, you know, SEALs or, or soldiers or what have you, and gather all that, you know, gather as much as you can. Generally, the hardest part, though, really is cutting down the stories is getting, you know, trying to condense a life or even a part of a life into 100,000 words, which is uh, memoirs tend to be between 85,000 and, and 100,000. And of course, I'm always going over, over, uh, which, you know, can can lead to problems. But um, <laughs> it, it's very difficult to, you know, to get somebody's life down to 85,000 or 100,000 mm -hmm. words. So we're always making difficult choices. Um, and when you're dealing with uh, things like, well, when you're dealing with any any sort of human memory, there's always there's always gaps, mm -hmm. and uh, in a lot of cases, unfortunately, there's gaps in in records. In in Henry's case, and in, and in a lot of the others, um, other research was already done. In Henry specifically, the Army had actually done, um, and First Army had actually done a lot of work. Uh, in Ray's case, uh, in Ray Lambert's case, uh, there was a lot of material that had been gathered by his unit uh, beforehand, uh, before we started talking. So, you know, that's a tremendous help and it's a good jumping off point, not only for my research, but also for, you know, for interviews when we talk. Do you ever feel like a counselor? I don't know if you would even know, I guess, what a counselor feels like, uh, but... It sounds as if when you're doing memoirs, you're you're reaching in and trying to grab memories from some of these people, right? And some may be good, some may be bad. I, I picture you almost as being a counselor on on the other couch, you know. Well, I, I'll tell you, I get some of my best uh, best material, um, or I've gotten some of my best material, and I won't name names. Uh, you know, in the back of cabs, you know, after after having hung out at the bar for several hours and you know on the way uh, and and unfortunately usually in those circumstances you can't just pull out your 
uh, record. I have a usually yeah. work with a couple of voice recorders and my phone, but you usually, you know, can't pull those out. And it's like, oh, I got to remember this when I get back. But uh-huh. um, at least for me, uh, I find it extremely useful to, you know, it takes a lot of time to develop a relationship with, with someone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and just pull things out in whatever it took. There was a lot of things that Henry basically, that Henry didn't want to talk about. And there's still some some things that happened during um, his captivity and and escape that he doesn't that I know Mm -hmm. happened but that he won't he won't talk about. Um, And getting him to talk, getting him to open up, you know, is largely a matter of you know of staying there and you know talking with him and being patient, having some hints from you know from the army's research, but really just uh, struggling to build up that rapport. Uh, and, you know, sometimes, hopefully, you know, hopefully it works. So with all your memoirs, did you have to do outside research for all of them? And, you know, how difficult can that be? You mentioned the Army, there were there government restrictions on you obtaining some of that research? Uh, there's no, World War Two. you know, is a res- actually the problem sometimes with World War Two is there's so much, you know, so much data and stuff. Um, the, just to kind of take a side note, the, the funny thing on, I wrote a biography of Omar Bradley and in, in doing the research, and actually my wife is the one that, uh, she often helps me and she did a lot of the research, original research for that book. And in the process of that, she came across a whole stack of really, really cool World War II photos that had never been used. And we think never seen after, you know, the fifties or something. There's certainly a lot of, certainly the dust on them would have attested to that, but it turned out that the photos had never been uh, okayed for use. They were still technically classified. So we had to go through this process, even though they're way, you know, almost 75 years old at that time um, and get them declassified Mm -hmm. with uh, certain books like uh, the like American Sniper, for instance, and then a book that I'm working on now uh, with Ruben Gallego called um, well, not 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 so much with that book, but with with American Sniper, with anyone anyone who is who worked with um, let's say the SEALs or special operations type uh, unit, uh, they have to get the book the manuscript has to be uh, looked over to make sure that there are no national secrets being revealed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that's a, that can be a long process and mm-hmm. uh, a bit of a pain, but you know, but it's the process that, that we go through. Do you work with deadlines? You know, if it's a memoir, are, de- are deadlines you set yourself? Uh, is it maybe by your publisher? Oh, I wish I, I wish I set the deadlines. No, the um, well, publish. Yeah, there's a publishing schedule, and the book, you know, is is tuned to come out at a certain time. Um, for instance, and where my work basically, and whether it's fiction or nonfiction, uh, the books that I do are, you know, they're they're big books. They're you know, so they have to fit into a certain schedule. That the publisher wants and where the publisher thinks that he uh, that they can get the most uh, basically the most publicity and the most um you know that they'll sell the most basically to be you know, 
not to put too mm -hmm. fine a line on it. You know, they want big mm -hmm. sales. They want it to be a bestseller. And um, so they'll work back from that. I like, uh, they call this Lucky, which is a book that I'm working on now, uh, will come out around Veterans Day. Uh, the idea being that they'll be able to, you know, to do a lot of promotion connected with uh, veterans. Whatever it took, unfortunately, came out just at the height of the, uh, at the height of the, uh, you know, of COVID. And, you know, so obviously that, that shut down a lot of our, shut down a lot of our media and especially our ability to, you know, to have book, uh, book signings and do a lot of public appearances. So, mm -hmm. so sometimes it doesn't matter how much planning that they actually do. Uh, you know, you're just subject to the whims of what happens. Worldwide pandemics. That's right. Have you have you uh, kept in touch with Henry? How are he and Arlene reacting to this story reaching so many people? I, you know, I I um, I talked to Henry and Arlene, uh, Henry especially every every not necessarily every week now, but you know, every couple of weeks I'd say at least. Um, and I should also mention that his daughter, one of his daughters, his daughter uh, Kay, was extremely helpful actually uh in handling logistics and stuff um and it's very very close to her parents still uh and is a real help uh there you know henry still insists he's not a hero i don't know what to tell you you know <laughs> he um he's been used he um he we were doing we were doing some show and he says now and of course we're live on the air and he's like now well somebody asked him some questions said, well don't tell jim but i'm giving all the money uh, away to charity and i get it's like and i'm listening i'm sitting right there it's like <laughs> oh there's a good secret <laughs> but uh he's you know he's kind of impish uh he's a very delightful 97 year old uh, fellow mm -hmm. still very vigorous uh you know at 97, you do slow down a little bit. Mm -hmm. he Sounds like there. his memory is still there, though. His memory is pretty good. Um, you know, his memory is very good. In in the case of the book, not only did we have the, you know, the other sources, but he had, when he was much, much younger, he had written down um, a lot of his experiences. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was actually very useful to, mm -hmm. you know, to double check and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and it also turned out that some of what the army had, had told us was wrong. We do handle some of that in the book, but um, it's interesting when you're looking back. I did a book on uh, the Rangers at Dieppe uh, during World War II, and it was the first, it's the first combat action, uh, ground action of uh, American soldiers in World War II. And there was this one, in this one piece of the battle, there were, I think there were uh, four guys and out of those four guys, I had uh, four different after action reports and you would not, reading them, you would not believe they were all in the same place at the same time. So it's always an interesting prospect mm -hmm. dealing with history and memory. So we know you're a prolific writer. You mentioned one book coming up. Are there other books coming up? Um, you said they call us lucky. Is that the one coming they, out? The they call us lucky is coming out. Um, assuming I do all the work they just asked me to do. <laughs> um, 
So you never, you never actually finished. That's the great thing about writing a book. You never actually finished with it. You know, there's always, there's always queries from the editor and mm-hmm. the copy edit to look at and tear your hair out about how did I make that dumb mistake? But uh, that's coming out around Veterans Day, probably a little bit before. And that is with uh, Ruben Gallego. Ruben uh, is a, actually a Democratic congressman now uh, from Arizona, but during the Iraq war, he was a Marine uh, uh, and not an officer. He was a grunt, as they say, he was an infantryman. And um, he has, uh, he is a hell of a story. And I guess the one thing that people will kind of talk about with him is that he, as a reservist and his whole unit was, was filled with reservists, uh, they were in the most, they were in the most action and lost the most men uh, during the war. So they have kind of this succession of horrific battles that they're in. And it's a lot, it's about that. It's also a lot about PTSD and, and dealing with that. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, again, kind of a different, kind of a different take on, on things than I've done. I try to you know, the stories that I'm interested in, in doing, whether it's the, the Rangers or, you know, or Ray Lambert or something, are stories that, you know, that either haven't been done or certainly there's a, you know, some sort of new angle on them. Because uh, I like to, you know, I like to learn something when I'm, while I'm writing. That's why I write. Hmm. So can you tell us a little about your writing habits? Do you have any routines that that help you or can you write anywhere at any time? I wish I could write anywhere at any time. I, um, now, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a job. It's, it's not a nine to five job, but uh, I get up uh, fairly <laughs> ridiculously early every morning. I drink a lot of coffee and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully get to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, if I was going to give anybody writing advice, I would say, you know, the first draft is the most important thing and you can't, you just have to get it out. And that's what I try to do. I try to describe it as putting my head down and just, just kind of writing and not being critical, not, uh, not stopping to, to the extent possible, not, not stopping or rewriting and getting, you know, once you have an entire manuscript, you can go back and then you can play with it. Then you can, you know, then you can change it around. Uh, and there's certain types of, you know, there's certain types of writing. I find doing, let's say a movie script that, you know, once I have that first draft there, then everything's revision. And, you know, a lot, there's a lot of re- revising going on. There's a lot more collaboration in a movie script and especially in a video game, for instance. But um, whereas a book for me is a little bit more you know, that's more a solitary act, but also requires, you know, at uh, a two, at least two drafts, two drafts, I guess, if you're really lucky and, or, or if you're really pressed with the deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that first draft, just getting it out and, and, you know, just advice for, uh, for other writers, for writers starting out, uh, you know, that first draft is going to suck, but it's okay that it sucks. Just, mm-hmm. just do it. You just got to get something there and then you can fix it. So it's pretty cool your involvement with video games. How did that come about? Uh, I got involved. I'm not sure. My first, the first game that I did, which actually didn't come out, and 
um, I think the reason I got it was because uh, somebody liked a story I had uh, written and, um, and this is going back a number of years. They liked a story I'd written and um, they wanted to make a deal with somebody else and they, that deal fell through. And literally from the time the guy was driving home from, the, from New York City actually uh, to uh, to where he lived, he decided that, uh, well, heck, if I can't get that guy, I'm going to, I'm going to try this guy, Felice. He's got this great story. And he called me up mm-hmm. and, uh, just out of the blue. And I don't know how he found my, my phone number, but he did and said, oh, I want you to do this. And would you like to do this? And I said, uh, well, sure. <laughs> and, uh, things kind of, kind of got, uh, strange and weird from there. <laughs> So is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up for today? Any other advice for students or alumni who are thinking about writing a book? I think the, the you know, there's, there's plenty of specific advice that people can get. And, um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different ways to, to write, just like there's different ways to walk or breathe or, or talk. But the most important thing is for you just simply to do it and to not worry. It's like I was saying about that first draft, not worry about what, you know, what someone else is going to, going to say, not worry about, uh, you don't even worry on that first, that first draft about your grammar or your spelling or anything else. Turn off spell check, turn off, you know, don't, don't use uh, any of the grammar checkers or anything, just get it out. And just understand that, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, it's not necessarily going to be easy. For me, every book that I've, every, every book that I've worked on, I've come to a point where I, it, I could not go on. It just could not be solved. There was no way, if it was a novel, there was no way, no possible way to make this plot work. No possible way to get uh, from, from point A to point B and C. Uh, and, and the same with the same with the nonfiction, you bang your head against the wall and you bang your head against the wall and you do whatever it is you do. Um, and then somehow miraculously a solution occurs. And once you're, you know, once you're through that point, then everything gets a tiny bit easier. Not necessarily, it's not necessarily easy, but you do get through it. So, you know, if you haven't written and you want to write, then you should absolutely try. Because the worst thing that would happen is that you decide, you know, you come to a point where well, I can't really do this. But if you do come to a point where you think that you can't do it, hang with it, you know, just you know, hit the wall. You know, you can always get a new wall, maybe not a new head, but at least a new <laughs> wall. And uh, just keep going. So before we close, would you mind reading us an excerpt from one of your books? <clears throat> Uh, this is actually from the introduction of Every Man a Hero, and uh, not to not to, to to slight Henry, but I happen to have I happen to have Ray's book right here. So, um, and this is uh, this is the introduction. This is zero hour plus fifteen, meaning that this is fifteen minutes into the invasion of um, the invasion at Normandy, and this is the moment at which um, Ray has. Ray Lambert, the medic, has already uh, has already gotten to the beach, so he's in the process of of uh, helping people. But this is actually written in my voice and directed. Uh, but you'll see who it's directed to. 
Imagine you are one among 160,000 about to join the greatest battle of the 20th century. The sun has been up for well over an hour, but you haven't seen it, partly because it's blocked by a shroud of thick clouds straining to hold back rain. The bigger reason though is this, you have neither the energy nor the space to raise your head, let alone the will, for to look up is to break the spell keeping you safe. The spell is an illusion and you know it, yet you cling to it as firmly as you can, gripping it harder even than your well-wrapped M1 rifle as you shift uncomfortably in the landing craft. You're hurtling toward Omaha Beach in Normandy, France. Dark smoke already covers your target. The whole world seems black, except the red flames from the burning boats nearby. You've dreaded and prayed for this day to arrive for weeks. At turns, you've been stoic, ambivalent, confident, fearful. Now it's finally here, and those emotions and 20 more are exploding inside you, threatening to pierce the thin shell of your psyche. Around you, bullets ricochet off the hull of the boat. For all the landings you've practiced, there is no model for this, no precedent, <clears throat> no preconception to force the shattered kaleidoscope of chaotic reality surrounding you into an ordered outline. You cannot hear distinct sounds. The engines, the shells, the gunfire, <clears throat> they've blurred into a roaring mix, half thunder, half symphony, orchestrated by distant, angry gods. The landing craft stops. The ramp splashes down. People shout, go. You blink your eyes and try to stir, only to realize you're already moving, propelled forward by a mysterious momentum, not by courage or duty or even will. Two steps onto the ramp and you're now half swimming. You've been let off in deeper water than you thought, further from the beach, but not the danger. The only direction is forward, towards something more, both more violent and more epic than you've ever experienced. Your brain is clogged with a thousand competing thoughts, none of them useless, some of them, most of them useless, some paralyzing, but one rises above the others. Who will save me if I am hit? Some vivid words. Thanks. Thank you for sharing an excerpt from Every Man a Hero with us. And thank you also for talking with us about a number of your other novels, including Henry's story in Whatever It Took, an American paratrooper's extraordinary memoir of escape, survival, and heroism in the last days of World War II. So for those who are listening, thank you. Once again, we hope you'll join us uh, again next week as we continue our series highlighting Red Fox authors. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can keep in touch and know every time we post a new episode of Marist Connections, we will continue to bring you conversations with alumni as well as students, faculty, staff, coaches, and others essential to the Marist community. If you have suggestions for future podcast themes or guests, please email them to marisalumni at marist.edu. And also be sure to check out Marist Alumni on Facebook and official Marist Alumni on Instagram. So Jim DeFelice, thank you again for spending time with us, sharing the background of your books with us. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your day.